Thank you, Steffi. Uh, not only is Steffi a small group leader at our church, but she is also uh, my wife, um, and she is awesome, so thankful for her. And if you heard a little kid uh, yelling in the background during worship uh, today, that was our daughter, Camden, who's in the back. Um, she loves singing songs with us and, and worshiping, so uh, it's fun to have them uh, here today. Uh, and I just highlight my family because I want to take a moment and just thank uh, all of you for the support uh, you've shown our family this last week. We've had so many calls and texts and um, just people reaching out, making sure we're okay. Um, many of you know this, but I'm a Cowboys fan. Uh, and so last week was a little hard for my family. And so just appreciate the way that you came around us and really supported us. People were asking if they could bring meals, and we're like, no, that's probably overkill. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a hard life uh, being a Cowboys fan. So um, you can't accuse us of being bandwagon. No one would choose choose the, uh, the destiny that Cowboys have every year of losing in the playoffs in just brutal fashion. So we're not here to talk about that today. We're here to talk about Jesus. So I just uh, wanted to get that out of the way and thank all of you who reached out. Uh, but as we continue our series today, become like Jesus and live for others. The question we have to wrestle with as a church and what Larry kind of walked us into last week and what we'll be talking about next week is, is what does it truly mean to follow Jesus? When we say we want to become like Jesus, it conjures up this image of discipleship, that people who claim to follow Jesus don't just adhere to some sort of mental assent to who he was and what he's done in the world, that, that we are a people that actually claim and strive to follow Jesus and live the way that he lived. And if we want to live like Jesus, if we want to become like Jesus, then we have to ask the question, what was Jesus like? What does it mean for us to be a disciple of Jesus? I have a friend uh, who, over the years, she grew up in the church and has kind of become disillusioned with the faith a little bit, fairly disinterested in Jesus and feels some sort of a, attachment to him, but is really frustrated with the church. And as my wife and I have talked with her over the years about this idea of, of following Jesus and why she's had challenges doing so, it really comes down to this idea of discipleship. And for her, her image of discipleship growing up in the church is this idea that uh, following Jesus means you attend church, you tithe regularly, and you make sure that your kids are involved in Sunday schools so that they can grow up to be good people. And that's not really that exciting or enthralling or captivating for her. And so for her, she sees the call to follow Jesus as just kind of a... Uh, and my fear is this idea that the discipleship to Jesus is some simply attending church somewhat regularly and tithing and giving things to the church and, and helping our kids know who Jesus is. I, I'm afraid that that idea of discipleship, when she says that, is that she is saying the quiet part out loud. That, that for many of us, when we think of following Jesus, we actually have a very similar idea of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I attend church, I give to the church, and I hope my kids turn out all right and this faith thing helps them along the way. My question for us today is, is that the depth of what it means to follow Jesus? Is that the extent of what it means to follow Jesus? Last year as a, a staff, we were going through and trying to figure out this idea of a mission statement, this, this North Star for Waterstone, is where we're headed over the next few years and what we as a church want to be about. 
And as we were having conversations about what it means to be a church and what it means to live for Jesus and become like Jesus, one of the ideas that was brought forth by one of our staff members, Emily Claus, she's our communications director, she's been on staff for a long time, many of you know her, is that she had come across this idea of what she called a dusty follower of Jesus, a dusty disciple of Jesus. And the image comes from ancient Jewish tradition where in rabbinical culture, rabbis would, would bring disciples around them and they would try to be dusty followers of their disciple, meaning that they would follow their rabbi so closely that they would be covered with the dust of his sandals. And it conjures up this image of not only following physically the steps of where their teacher goes, but following their teaching as closely as possible. Now, if you know anything about ancient culture, walking around in streets where there was no sewers, where there was no crew to come around and clean and sweep the streets, the streets in those days were incredibly dirty. And walking on those streets, getting that dust on you would be an incredibly dirty idea. It's not a clean image. In fact, uh, I've shared some about this trip that I I did a few um, months ago, but I went on this trip where we were riding horses through the, the, the back country of Wyoming. And as we were riding, there was a long line of horses and mules and the dust that it kicked up. I mean, we were just caked by the end of this 12-hour horseback ride in dust and grime. We'd take down your, your mask and you would have these like eyes where they were just covered in dirt and grime. Your clothes, you just couldn't get it off of you. Some of us just threw some of our clothes away when we got back from the trip because we were so covered in dust. You see, when we talk about being a dusty disciple, a follower of Jesus, following Jesus where he went, my fear is that we actually like the idea that following Jesus only requires us to go to church semi-regularly, tithe regularly, and send our kids to Sunday school because there's no mess. It doesn't actually involve going to the places Jesus went, being with the people Jesus was around. My fear is that, like my friend, many of us are actually content with that image, but that we are missing out on what it means to be a true follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. And so the story that Steffi just read, at the heart of this story is this idea of what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to live for Jesus and to become like Jesus and live for others? And it's a fascinating story because within this story, you have three main characters that are kind of interacting with one another and that Luke is using to kind of compare reactions and ways people interact with Jesus and how Jesus interacts with people. And so the story begins with a Pharisee named Simon who invites Jesus into his house. And what we need to know about the Pharisees is if you've heard that term Pharisee, is that they were a group of people, lay leaders within the church. They weren't paid to be within the Jewish church or the synagogues, but they were lay people who were deeply committed to following God and following his law. And they saw it as their responsibility to turn Israel back towards God through following the law. And their whole purpose as a group of people was to try to preach the law, tell people about the law, and make sure people were following the law so that God would bless and make Israel great again. And these people deeply, deeply despised Jesus. 
they were very antagonistic towards Jesus because he shows up on the scene and is preaching a very different message than follow the law and make sure you have all your ducks in a row and are doing everything right and attend synagogue and do all of the things that the law says. So they are deeply opposed to Jesus. And yet what we see in Simon is that he's an open character. He's willing to explore who Jesus is, willing to investigate his claims and his teachings and see if Jesus is possibly a prophet from God. And so he invites Jesus to his house. And what you have to realize is that an invitation to dinner and to eating with someone, it's not just a simple invitation of like, hey, let's eat together and get to know each other. It's an invitation into relationship. He is curious about who Jesus was, wants to know him more deeply, and is risking association with him with a group of people that are very opposed to Jesus and his teaching. And we've got to really understand the terms of the arrangement. Because Pharisees were not just opposed to Jesus. They were the group of people that eventually had Jesus executed. They were the group of people who were most responsible for his death and murder. When I say they despised Jesus, it was to the point where they were willing to kill him for the things that he stood for. And yet Jesus knowing all of this, knowing their position against him, accepts an invitation into Simon's house. I think we have to pause and and just wrestle with that idea of if we follow Jesus where he goes, he may lead us into places, into homes, into situations where people are hostile and openly opposed to us. How will we respond in those situations? How will we react to people who are very opposed to the message of Jesus Christ in the world? Jesus responds with hospitality and accepts this invitation and accepts association with this person. And as they sit down to dinner, it's a a situation where they're talking with one another. And in those days, when you sat down to dinner, there wasn't this image that we have of sitting down to dinner where everybody's sitting around a table and there's chairs and everybody's, they would recline at this table. And typically they would recline on their left arm with their feet away from the table and eat with their right hand. People lay down and the, the table was very low to the ground. And so as they're sitting around this table or they're reclining around this table, an interruption happens. A woman who's been observing this meal, which isn't actually that unusual, another thing that's not, if you invite someone over to your house, you usually close the door after they come in. In those days, the door was left wide open and anyone who wanted to could come and observe the dinner and see what was being served and see what the conversation was going on. And so there's probably a crowd of people that have come around. They're very interested in knowing how this interaction is gonna go between Jesus and Simon. And so they're watching and observing. And what Luke tells us is that one of the people in the crowd observing this dinner was a a woman of the city who was a sinner. She has a reputation with the entire community, the entire town of being a sinner. And in the middle of this dinner, as Jesus is conversing with Simon, and they're probably talking about theology and who God is and the way to follow the law, She comes forward and Luke tells us that her intent of interrupting this meal was to anoint Jesus with an expensive perfume. But as she approaches Jesus, she's overcome by emotion and she begins to weep uncontrollably. 
the language that, that Luke uses is it conjures up this image of rain, that, that she is drenching and raining down tears on Jesus' feet as she weeps. And you could just imagine being in this scene and watching this play out. A nice meal, people are conversing, everybody's trying to, to make sure they hear what's going on in the conversation as these, these two masters of the law and teachers go back and forth about what it means to follow God, and someone disrupts that by weeping. And you begin to hear the sniffling and the cries and the tears, and, and as you turn and notice this woman who is crying by the table, she does something unimaginable, and she takes her hair down and kneels at the feet of Jesus and begins wiping his feet, wiping the dirt and the muck and the grime with her hair. She begins pouring perfume over his feet and massaging it into his skin, and you can just imagine the embarrassment from everyone just watching this scene play out. What is this person doing? And yet Jesus doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't shame her. He doesn't send her away. But Simon has an interesting reaction in that he has invited Jesus into his house. He's open to seeing if this man might be a prophet of God. But when he sees this woman approach Jesus, when he sees this woman touching the feet of Jesus, oh, he's got his answer. There's no way he could be a prophet of God. Because if he were a prophet of God, then he would know who this woman is. He would have the understanding that she is a sinner. And if he were a prophet of God, then he would know that about her and he would separate himself from her because people of God do not associate with people like her. They do not have relationship or connection with people like her. And so if he doesn't know who she is, then there's no way he could be of God because he would have that kind of knowledge. Or maybe he, he does know who she is and he allows her to do that anyways and then surely he cannot be from God. Because you see, in those days, to be labeled a sinner was to be completely excommunicated from the, the faith community. A person who was labeled a sinner was not allowed to participate in worship at the synagogue. They were not allowed to participate in the faith community in any way, shape, or form because of their reputation and the sin that they carried with them. The, the people of God didn't want them to contaminate their community, so they created separation between themselves and sinners to make sure that there was no possible way that anyone could think that they condone or accept the behavior, that they would endorse what these people are known for. And yet Jesus bypasses all of those regulations, all of those laws, all of those rules, and allows this woman to touch him, to contaminate him. And what we have to realize is that, that oftentimes when this story is preached, and when this story is shared, and you've probably heard this, I think I've even preached stories this way, is, is we immediately jump to the, what this woman's sin was. We say, oh, she was a prostitute. She was a person of the city. She was a prostitute. And the trick is that there's actually very little contextual evidence that tells us specifically what her sin was. 
And I think it's actually a fairly unimaginative leap to think that the only thing that she could be guilty of would be prostitution because she's labeled a sinner. In fact, earlier in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Peter, as Jesus approaches him to follow him, Peter says, go away from me for I am a sinner. It's funny, no one ever says that Peter was a prostitute. (laughs) That's not what, what, what we jump to. And so what we know about this woman is that she has a reputation as a sinner in her community, but I think Luke intentionally leaves that sin unidentified. In fact, she's the only person in the story who remains unnamed. And I think what Luke is doing is is he is using her story and her situation as a stand-in for sinners, for people who identify with her, the, the unnamed person who deals with some unidentified sin. And the only other thing from this story that we know about her is that she is incredibly wealthy. This alabaster jar of perfume that she has, that, that she pours out, and this jar that she breaks and anoints Jesus' feet with, it would be incredibly, incredibly costly. Incredibly costly. It would probably be the equivalent of a year's salary in that day, or about 500 denarii. And so this woman, she comes to Jesus weeping and gives this extremely costly gift to Jesus. This expression of gratitude and thankfulness for who he is and what he has done in her life. And the Pharisees' response to that is, there is no way Jesus could be from God because this woman is a sinner. And so Jesus, showing that in fact he is a prophet of God, knows the thoughts of Simon, knows the internal dialogue that's happening. And he says, Simon, I have a story for you. And he tells the story of a debtor who, who has two people who owe a lot of money and they can't pay it. And he says, one person owes 50 denarii, which would be about the equivalent of, of like a few months wages. So let's just say like, like $6,000. And another person owes 500 denarii. Again, that's about a little over a, a year's salary. And so we could say that it's a, somewhere around $60,000. And so one person owes $6,000. One person owes $60,000 of debt. And the debtor forgives both debts and releases them from the debt that they're under. Now, even though they owe different amounts, Jesus asks Simon, who do you think would be more grateful for having their debt forgiven? And Simon guesses correctly, well, probably the one that owes so much more money. You see, it's a very simple story, but I I think what's fascinating about it is what Jesus' point is making is that it doesn't matter if you owe 50 denarii or 500 denarii, if you can't pay your debt yourself, you're in the exact same place. It doesn't matter how deeply in the red your ledger is, if you cannot pay back your debts, you are in the exact same place. The only difference is the recognition of how deeply you are grateful for the forgiveness you've received. And so as Jesus has told this story, and as Jesus has has tried to, to help Simon understand, you see this woman as a sinner, but I see her as someone who has been forgiven. 
Jesus turns to the woman who's still at his feet. And Luke tells us that he says to Simon, do you see this woman? And I don't think that in this moment Jesus is asking, do you physically see this woman? Do you see her here? I mean, everyone has seen this woman. She has caused an incredible scene at this dinner. She has interrupted everything that has been going on. She has caused everything to pause and stop and forced everyone to acknowledge that she is in the room. See, when Jesus says, do you see this woman? I think Jesus is asking Simon, how do you see this woman? Do you see her simply as a sinner? as the way that she has been labeled in the community? Or do you have the ability to see her as someone who has been forgiven and restored and is a part of the community of faith? You see, I think the question for us as we approach this story and as we see Jesus' grace and forgiveness for this woman is we have to look at the different characters in the story because I think what this story forces us to do is, is force us to ask the question, how do we see other people? How do we see other people that carry labels of the different tribes and demographics and groups and communities that they participate in? How do we see people who don't think like us or believe like us or act like us or who are outside the community of faith? How do we see other people? And do we see other people the way that Jesus sees other people? And I think also this story forces us to ask the question, how do we see ourselves? Because you see, as Jesus approaches this woman, through this woman, we are confronted with how we see ourselves. This sinful woman who remains unnamed, I think, is a stand-in for so many of us who struggle with sin. If you've ever been in a position where you have felt overwhelmed by your sin, if you have felt like there's some sin in your life that you can never overcome, that you keep coming back to again and again and again, this sin is how you identify yourself, how you label yourself, how you think God sees you. The sin that when you're in your small group and everyone's talking about confessing, it's the one thing that you think I cannot share because if they knew this about me, I would not be allowed in this community at all. See, the woman remains unnamed and her sin unidentified with so that we can place ourselves within her story and see ourselves within her story. Because I know what I tend to do with those sins and, and the ways that I label myself a sinner. And the way I think many of us approach our sin and the way we see our sin is that we think of God's grace and we think that there's a, a boundary, a circle drawn around God's grace with his grace in the center. And as a sinner, we are completely outside of the boundary of God's grace. And there's nothing that we could ever do to enter that circle of God's grace to receive his forgiveness and release. That that circle has been bounded off by God and that we cannot receive his grace because we have been too sinful. And so we allow our shame and our guilt to keep us from approaching Jesus. Because sinners have a tendency to believe that God could never save me. That I'm too far gone. 
And what's interesting about this woman is that the posture she has before Jesus, the posture she has at Jesus' feet, throughout Luke's gospel, that is what is held up as the standard of discipleship. The standard of following Jesus is the people who continually come and fall at Jesus' feet, who sit at Jesus' feet. Those who fall at Jesus' feet are held up as the epitome of what it means to follow Jesus. And what we learn from this sinful woman who's been excommunicated from her faith, who carries the shame and guilt of not being allowed to participate within the community of God's people, who is considered outside the bounds of his grace, she does not allow that shame and guilt to keep her from approaching Jesus. She approaches him boldly risking rejection, risking embarrassment, risking shame in humility and repentance. I think this woman perfectly illustrates what Paul calls godly sorrow about our sin. In 2 Corinthians 7, 10, Paul says that those who experience godly sorrow for their sin, sorrow around their sin, not just because they've been caught in sin, not because uh, sin has done things to damage them, but because they understand that sin grieves the heart of God. That when we experience that level of sorrow around our sin, that, that sin is actually an affront, an attack, and a rebellion against our relationship with God. That when we experience sorrow for that, that type of sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation. And I love this. Repentance that leads to salvation and a life without regret. That's what Paul says godly sorrow is. And I think that is the picture that we have of this woman. As someone who experiences the sorrow about these labels that she has carried, the shame that she has carried, the sin that she has carried, and she brings that all to the feet of Jesus, knowing that he is the one who can forgive her sins and give her the release from the regret that she has lived with. And so the question for us is, do we approach Jesus the same way as this woman? As we seek to follow Jesus, as we seek to be a disciple of Jesus, do we come to his feet willing to bear our sin and shame and guilt and lay it at his feet in order to receive forgiveness? Because that's what happens at the end of the story. Look at what Jesus says to this woman at the end of the story. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And it's not just this idea that, okay, I forgive you, it's okay, don't worry about it, go on. The, the root of this idea of forgiveness is release. That the burdens that you have carried, the sin that has weighed you down, that has labeled you, the shame that you are carrying, I bring you freedom and release from those things that you no longer have to carry that shame or that guilt. You have freedom because of who I am. And it's why when Jesus says that, that you're forgiven, that everyone in the room, they're shocked. I mean, there's just an audible gasp, and they think, who is this that thinks they can release people from sin? Jesus alone is the one who can release us from our sin and our guilt and our shame. Do we approach the feet of Jesus like this woman? 
that only in him can we find release and freedom from our guilt and our shame. If the woman confronts how we see ourselves, then I think the Pharisee, his role in this story is he confronts how we see other people. Because if sinners have a tendency to to draw a boundary around God's grace and, and see God's grace as something that they are firmly outside of, and Pharisees kind of have the opposite tendency. And Pharisees tend to be the kind of people that think that, that God could only save me. When they think of God's grace, they tend to draw a boundary around God's grace with themselves firmly placed in the middle of it. And Pharisees are experts at, at telling other people who is outside the community of faith, who is outside the bounds of God's grace. They have firm convictions about what is right or wrong, and they're not afraid to tell other people about what the truth is. And so they have been saved. They have been, been redeemed. They are experiencing God's grace. But man, those other people who don't look like me, who don't act like me, who don't believe what I believe, who don't think the way that I think, there's no way that God could ever save someone like that. You see, I think most of us, we have a tendency to be both the woman and the Pharisee. And here's the the truth of the Pharisee. Here's the deep truth of of those of us who have trouble believing God could love other people who are not like us. And I, I see this struggle within myself. I see this struggle of of groups of people or people that I'm friends with or that I know that I think, I just don't see where God could redeem this person. I don't see how this person who, who maybe even claims to follow Jesus but does it differently than me, I don't see how they could be within the bounds of God's grace. You see, here's the deep truth and the secret about the Pharisees is that even though they see themselves firmly placed within the boundary of God's grace, they don't actually believe it. They don't actually believe that God can save them. You see, they think that they're within the bounds of God's grace because they follow the rules, they attend church, they tie the way they're supposed to, and they send their kids to Sunday school. They think they're checking all the boxes and doing all the things that make a follower of Jesus. And so it's up to them to save themselves and do all of the right things and that there's not actually a a way that Jesus could deal with the sin, even though it's maybe smaller than what everyone else has dealt with. See, what the Pharisee and the woman show us is that to the depths we have received and experienced God's grace is the depths to which we can express that towards others. You see, the Pharisee can't believe that anyone could actually be saved by God or that they are all outside of God's grace because they have not experienced the grace of God deeply enough for themselves. You see, they have this deep conviction about what's right and wrong, and they know that they are following all of the rules. And so if they're following all the rules and God may not even be able to save them, then surely he couldn't even save someone who's not even trying to live in relationship with God. See, the deep truth about the Pharisees is they don't believe God's grace is enough for them either. What I love about this story 
is that as Jesus enters into relationship with both Simon the Pharisee, as he accepts that invitation, and as he accepts the gift from the sinful woman, he tells a story about two people who are both in debt and cannot pay their debts. One who has very little debt and one who has massive debt. It says both of you are unable to save yourself. Doesn't matter how little or how much you owe, you both need forgiveness and release and freedom. And so the question for those of us who might fall into the camp of the Pharisee is, is do we allow our convictions to justify our contempt for other people? Are we so, so committed to truth and to right and wrong and to morality and to what we think is the right approach to life and what other people need to do that we have lost sight of the person of Jesus. And yes, Jesus addressed sin. He addresses sin in this passage. But do we allow our conviction to justify our contempt of other people? See, what Jesus says is that there's no room for contempt among any of us because we're all in debt. And only Jesus can provide the freedom and release that we're looking for. You see, the truth is that Jesus doesn't see people as good and evil, but good and redeemable. Every person, including every person sitting in this room, Jesus sees us as redeemable. As people who are capable of being his disciples and following after him, no matter what our past or our present. Jesus doesn't see the label sinner placed on any of us when we choose to follow him. I love the way that the story concludes because he tells this woman to go in peace. Your faith has saved you. And we miss it because uh, I think we just see go in peace as kind of like a, an official like goodbye or greeting, like peace out, see you later, we'll talk again soon. This idea of, of peace is, is rooted in the Hebrew idea of shalom, of completeness, of wholeness. See, when Jesus provides freedom from the sin that we carry, from the burdens that we carry, it leads to a life of completeness and wholeness where we don't have to allow our shame and guilt to keep us from following hard after him. That we can approach the feet of Jesus boldly like this woman full of godly sorrow, yes, for what we have done wrong, but with the assurance that Jesus is the one who can release us and free us and make us whole. And Waterstone, to the depth that we experience that freedom, that forgiveness, that release, is the depth to which we will be able to express that grace and compassion and forgiveness to others. 
And so as we seek to become like Jesus, may we rest at his feet knowing the depths of forgiveness that he has for each one of us, but may it compel us to express the joy and gratitude and freedom and release and grace and forgiveness that only he can bring towards others. That is at the heart of discipleship and being a dusty follower. Would you pray with me now as we close? Heavenly Father, God, as we look at this story of Jesus and we see this woman who was labeled a sinner, God, I identify so much of my story within her own. God, when I see myself, it is so hard not to see my failures, my guilt, my shame, the ways that I know I have not lived up to the things that I know you have called me to. And yet what we see in Jesus is this beautiful story of release and freedom and completeness that only he can bring. God, I pray that we would be a community that is characterized by that release and that freedom and that forgiveness. That God, we would boldly come before you embracing our weakness, embracing our shame, embracing our guilt, and not allow that to keep us from you so that we can more deeply understand the forgiveness that you bring, not for ourselves, but so that we can share that truth with the world that we can invite them into spaces where they can know that same freedom and that same release. God, it is in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray, amen.